Welcome to the Magic and Alchemy podcast, where we talk about witchcraft, setting intentions, forgotten folklore, and mythology. Created by Tamed Wild, Magic and Alchemy is a collection of stories, rituals, and articles crafted by a variety of creators and writers, including myself, Kristen Lizenby, and my co-host, Kate Ballou. Hello and welcome back to the Magic and Alchemy podcast. I'm Kate Ballou. And I'm Kristen Lizenby. Happy Mercury Day, Kristen. Happy Mercury Day to you as well. Happy Valentine's Day. Blessed Lupercalia. Yes. Uh, So much to discuss today. Totally. And I'm really excited for our conversation And I just wanted to put a quick plug in here for us for the second half of season three, which I can't believe. So if there are questions, listeners, or topics, or even guests you'd like us to explore or talk with as we create the second half of this season, please reach out to us via email at podcast at tamedwild.com or Kristen and I on Instagram at k8baloo or at East and Alchemy. Yeah, and I know we don't want to give too much away, but we do have some really special guests that will be helping us wrap up our third season. Wild to think about. Um, But we really enjoy your questions, listeners, um, and hearing what's on your mind. And so often there is so much overlap with the messages we receive, Mm -hmm. which feels really special. Like we're all operating on a similar frequency within the magical witch wide web. 100% love those synchronicities. And this leads me to our next point, listeners. So last year, Kristen and I received an Instagram DM. I wish I could find it in my messages and remember who this was. Um, But basically, this listener asked us about the overlaps between sex and war in many goddess mythologies. And Kristen and I couldn't explore those stories in just a single listener question, so we really wanted to dedicate this episode to the conversation between these sacred aspects of the human experience, death, rebirth, and pleasure in goddess stories. These stories intersect and diverge in more ways than one, and even though we're only focusing on two ancient, ancient goddesses today, I think it's safe to say that their stories continue to influence the more modern myths of our time. So today we'll be discussing Inanna and Isis. Let's get into it. Kate that I wanted to talk about Inanna for an episode dedicated to goddesses of sex and war, she gave me a copy of Inanna, Queen of Heaven and Earth, Her Stories and Hymns from Sumer by Diane Wolkstein and Samuel Kramer. So thank you, Kate, for sharing that. And also listeners, much of the Inanna conversation today was inspired by and sourced from this text. So I'll be sure to link it in our show notes if you want to read it yourself and go even deeper into Inanna's world. 
I'm so glad that that was helpful. And just quick shout out to Ariana Rines for sharing that publication with a group of us during a poetry workshop a couple of summers ago. Yeah, thank you, Ariana. So in this book, Kramer begins by suggesting that female deities were worshipped and adored all through Sumerian history, but the goddess who outweighed, overshadowed, and outlasted them all was a deity known to the Sumerians by the name of Inanna, Queen of Heaven, and to the Semites who lived in Sumer by the name of Ishtar. Inanna played a greater role in myth, epic, and hymn than any other deity, male or female. The goddess Inanna, Queen of Heaven, was worshipped in ancient Sumer from as early as 4000 BCE. Sumer was sometimes called Babylon, although Babylonian civilization technically absorbed and followed that of Sumer, which today we know as modern-day southern Iraq. The heart of Sumer existed between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, which we would later come to know as Mesopotamia. Known for her dominion over love and war, but also agriculture and the underworld, to date, the oldest known relic depicting Inanna comes from a ceramic vase found in ancient Uruk, her cult city, and is believed to date back to sometime around 3200 BCE. This vase shows a parade of naked men carrying baskets of food and other offerings and handing them over to a female figure standing in front of Inanna's symbol of two twisted reeds. This same symbol appears at the entrance of temples and holy spaces and was believed to mark the limit between the profane and sacred realms. Of course, there are many theories as to what this vase might be telling us, but whether it's referencing an annual celebration um, of the goddess or a story, a seasonal sacrifice or a voyage to another realm, or something else is still up for debate. As the Queen of Heaven, Inanna offered support in the realms of fertility, lust, childbirth, healing, and justice. However, unlike other goddesses that oversaw these matters, Inanna was not a mother goddess, nor was she a fan of marriage in the traditional sense. Stories tell us that Inanna had many lovers, although she was married to the divine shepherd Demuzi. Like his wife, Demuzi plays an important role in Sumer's agricultural highs and lows, sowing season and harvest season, and he's also the sacrificial element in certain stories. But before we get into those stories, I want to note Inanna's origin, because this is where things are typically clarified, but in Inanna's case, they remain murky. Some origin stories suggest that, like we often see in the world of gods, Inanna's divinity was adopted from or absorbed from an earlier deity, um, one whose story predated ancient Sumer and was perhaps lost to history. Others suggest that Inanna was a syncretic goddess, which means she was born from a blend of characteristics of several already existing deities in the Sumerian world. Looking at Inanna's family tree doesn't always help either. Usually, she is considered the daughter of Nana, the moon god, and his wife, Ningal. But it's also been recorded that Inanna is the daughter of Enlil, wind spirit and guardian of the Tablet of Destinies, and Ninlil. 
or that she's the daughter of Enki, the god of wisdom. Enki and Enlil are brothers, and in turn, the great-grandchildren or grandchildren of Tiamat and Apsu, the primordial chaos from which the world was created. Anana has a twin brother known as Utu or Shamash, the god of the sun and truth. Her sister, Ereshkigal, is perhaps the most well-known within Anana's family tree. She is the ruler of the Sumerian underworld and famously murders Anana in the story of Anana's descent, uh, which I'll get into in just a moment. Some sources also name Adad, the god of storms, as another of Anana's brothers. And the details of Anana's family tree are not super important for most of us, but I think it's worth noting that things are malleable in this arena, a bit obscured and conflicting at times. In place of listing off all the associations and characteristics of this goddess, I would love to tell a few of Anana's stories today. I don't come bearing all sorts of interpretations and explanations as to what exactly these stories symbolize, what they might mean for us today, um, although I do have a few theories, but instead I want people to infer for themselves. How do these stories make you feel? How does this play into Anana's role as a goddess of sex and war? What has been left unsaid and why? I'll be sharing summaries, but the book I mentioned earlier, Anana, Queen of Heaven, has beautiful full retellings if anyone is interested. I'll begin with the most famous tale of Anana, that of her descent into the underworld. The story begins with a line that I love. From the great above... Anana opened her ear to the great below. Mm, I love that so much. I know. It's like hooked right from the start. Totally. And, you know, I would love to dive into an as above, so below rabbit hole right <laughs> now and try and find like all the ties and parallels between Anana and this ancient phrase. But that will be a task for future Kristen in a future episode, perhaps. But if anyone is interested, Kate and I explore the expression as above, so below in episode 29, although I do not think Anana makes an appearance. So from the great above, Anana opened her ear to the great below. In this myth, we see the goddess vacate her earthly and heavenly thrones to visit the underworld. Some suggest Anana is headed there to pay respects to her sister's husband, Gugalana, who had recently died. Others say that's not the case at all, and since Anana was known for pushing boundaries, sometimes too far, she likely went with the intent of dethroning her sister, Ereshkigal, and claiming the underworld as her own. Anana's servant, Ninshubar, accompanies her on this voyage, and she warns the girl that if anything happens to her, she must alert the others, specifically the father gods, Enlil, Nana, and Enki. The underworld is called Kur, K-U-R, and in order to meet her sister, Anana passes through the seven gates of Kur. At each gate, she is forced to remove one of her royal garments, including her crown, which many suggest symbolize her powers. At the end, Anana wears nothing at all. Powerless and looking up to face her sister, Ereshkigal strikes Anana, turning her into a corpse, a rotting piece of meat, 
as she is described, which is hung from a hook on the wall for three days and nights. Luckily, Ninshubar heeds the goddess's warnings and realizes divine intervention is necessary. She visits Enlil and Nana, who blame Anana for venturing into a land that was not hers and refuse to help. But Enki, he grabs a bit of dirt from beneath his fingernails and crafts two creatures to help his daughter. He gives them the food and water of life and tells them to sprinkle it over Anana's corpse so she can again rise up to the earth and the heavens. The creatures do as they're told, but in order for Anana to leave the underworld, she must first choose someone to take her place. She happily decides that her husband, Demuzi, would make the perfect replacement. Anyone who loves Greek Persephone or her Roman equivalent, Proserpina, will likely feel that they already know this story. The parallels between Anana's descent and return from the underworld and Persephone's are quite visible. Scholars and mythologists often discuss these goddesses and their relationships to death and rebirth and their ties to seasonal ebbs and flows. There is also a shared idea in these stories that once you enter the underworld, it is not easy to leave. And when, if we do, some part of us will remain. In the Anana myth, Demuzi's death also reminds me of Wheel of the Year lore, uh, which we often talk about, where the dying god sacrifices himself at the end of harvest season. Another story of Anana's, this one where Lilith makes an appearance, is called Anana and the Halupu Tree. Quick little sidebar here to mention my love of Lilith and also that this goddess has been weaving her way in and out of mythologies for quite some time. And while she is most known for her role as Adam's first wife in Judaic scripture, before then she was one of Anana's priestesses, nicknamed the Hand of Anana. Their seemingly close friendship is just one of the reasons why the story of the Halupu tree is so curious. I didn't know that. I'm really excited to hear you talk about this. Yeah, so in this creation myth, Enki sets sail for the underworld, and soon after, a single tree, a halupu tree, sprouts on the banks of the Euphrates River. The river feeds the tree, but the southern winds tear at its limbs and eventually rip its roots from the earth. Anana saves the tree, takes it to Uruk, and plants it in her garden. She hopes that once the tree grows larger, it will make the most spectacular throne and bed. But then a serpent takes up residence near the halupu's roots and will not leave. And an anzu bird makes its nest in the branches and will not leave. And then the dark maid Lilith makes a nice little nook inside of the tree and will not leave. With her tree occupied, Anana calls on her brother Utu for help getting rid of these creatures. He denies her, so she calls on Gilgamesh, the king of Uruk. He enters Anana's garden, strikes the serpent, scares away the Anzu bird, and enrages Lilith so much that she smashes the Hulupu tree rather than handing it over to the intruder. She then runs away to live in the wild. Nobody can say for certain what species the halupu tree is, as it only appears in Sumerian myth. 
Some suggest it might be a reference to a cosmic tree like the Tree of Life. Others say it was a weeping willow for its connection to the underworld and the heavens. The same goes for the mysterious Anzu bird, a wise creature that was said to be half lion, half eagle, breather of both fire and water. When I first heard this story, I didn't understand why Anana would want to drive Lilith, the serpent, and the Anzu bird from her garden. But most agree that the destruction of the Hlupu tree symbolizes the goddess's demotion and will to endure. In some versions of this tale, after Lilith smashes the tree to pieces, Anana rewards Gilgamesh with a drum and drumstick from the base and crown of the tree, which gives him the ability to talk with gods and descend to their plane. In one of my favorite books, Mysteries of the Dark Moon, author Demetra George asks, quote, Why would Anana weep at the presence of her handmade Lilith in her tree? Why did she wish for the symbols of the ancient bird and snake goddess to be gone from her life? And why did she reward Gilgamesh for destroying the sacred serpent and banishing Lilith and the Anzu bird? End quote. Viewing this story from a feminist lens, George reminds us that between 3000 and 2500 BCE, the ancient Sumerian culture began to interact with the coming of the patriarchy. George suggests that Inanna had to submit to the new solar gods and allow Gilgamesh to destroy the key symbols of her power, the bird, snake, and tree. She goes on to say that, quote, the ancient bird and snake goddess who made their nest at the home and base of the tree of life united heaven and earth. The image contained the power and knowledge inherent in the eagle-winged, lion-faced bird and the wisdom of sexual renewal embodied by the serpent. Anana had to give up these symbols of her power if the new patriarchy was to grant her throne and bed, her new symbols signifying co-ownership in the new reign. If she could not let go of them voluntarily, they would be taken away from her in any case by the coming patriarchal onslaught. End quote. So, viewing it from this angle, Anana banishing Lilith from her garden was a move to protect the Dark Maiden and goddess culture in general. This is all so fascinating, I have to say. Yeah, I agree. I really, really um, enjoy these viewpoints. And, you know, of course, I said I wasn't going to share many theories, and here I am, like, theorizing. <laughs> I can't, I can't help myself, but... You know, listeners, Kate, Witchweb, I would love to hear what you think as well about this story. And there's also a story that I alluded to in our sex magic discussion from episode 51, how Anana became a goddess of sex and how she was initiated into that realm. And I briefly mentioned her eating some fruit from the tree of knowledge, an apple tree, which of course sounds like so many other stories that we've heard. But for those who asked me to elaborate on this story, I was referencing the myth of Anana and the God of Wisdom, sometimes called the story of Anana and Enki. This story begins with Anana sitting against an apple tree and admiring her genitalia when she decides to go to Abzu which is the below-ground, underwater layer, um, primeval sea that exists beneath the underworld, in order to visit the god of wisdom and offer a prayer to Enki. In the book, Anana, Queen of Heaven, it says, quote, I, the Queen of Heaven, shall visit the god of wisdom. 
I shall go to the Abzu, the sacred place in Eridu. I shall honor Enki, the god of wisdom, in Eridu. I shall utter a prayer to Enki at the deep, sweet waters. End quote. Enki greets the goddess with food and drink, but maybe with a little too much drink because the god of wisdom ends up gifting Anana most of his power. Anana says, He gave me truth. He gave me descent into the underworld. He gave me ascent from the underworld. He gave me the Krigara. He gave me the dagger and sword. He gave me the black garment. He gave me the colorful garment. He gave me the loosening of the hair. He gave me the binding of the hair. He gave me the bitter tooth lion. He gave me the kindling of fire. He gave me the putting out of fire. He gave me the weary arm. He gave me the assembled family. He gave me procreation. This passage goes on and on with all these divine blessings, but when Enki sobers up and realizes what he's done, he requests that Inanna return all these gifts. But she refuses, he relents, and Inanna docks the boat of heaven at her holy shrine in Uruk and unloads the wisdom to be shared with the people of Sumer. Something I find interesting when considering these Inanna stories is that they feel so different than, say, like tales of the warrior goddess Athena or the Irish Morrigan, uh, both deities associated with war. I have yet to hear a story where Anana rushes into battle and slays a dragon, but the hymns of Anana suggest she's a fitting adversary for anyone who wishes to challenge her. One hymn says, She stirs confusion and chaos against those who are disobedient to her, speeding carnage and inciting the devastating flood, clothed in terrifying radiance. It is her game to speed conflict and battle, untiring, strapping on her sandals. Anyone fighting a war was occasionally referred to as partaking in the dance of Anana. In the Encyclopedia of Spirits, the ultimate guide to the magic of fairies, genies, demons, ghosts, gods, and goddesses, when describing the overlap of Anana and her Babylonian equivalent, Ishtar, author Judica Isles says that Anana is the original name of the Sumerian spirit. Ishtar is a Semitic name for this goddess. They refer to the same spirit, although they manifest slightly differently. They are the same, but Ishtar is more so. She battles all day and loves all night. It's said that all acts of love and pleasure are her rituals. I love that. From Merlin Stone's When God Was a Woman, she says, quote, Ishtar of Babylon, the successor to Inanna, was identified with the planet Venus. In some Babylonian texts, this planet was called Masat, literally defined as prophetess. Ishtar was depicted sitting upon the royal throne of heaven, holding a staff around which coiled two snakes. Besides Ishtar, scholars believe that Inanna and her customs were adopted by the Phoenician goddess Astarte, also known for overseeing the realms of love, war, and fertility. Also Lilith, who I've already mentioned, the ancient wind spirit and hand of Inanna. And like Merlin Stone suggested, Anana also has ties to the Roman goddess of love, Venus, and the Greek Aphrodite. 
She may also be a personification of the planet Venus, which explains why she was called the morning star and associated with both the eight-pointed star and the pentagram. So Kristen, I have to ask, why do you think that sex and death and war are so inextricably linked in these stories? Uh, You know, that's such a good question. And I kept asking myself the same thing as I was organizing these stories for our episode. And I'm not sure I could answer that question just like based off my opinions of like one goddess's stories. But after studying so many amazing moon spirits and triple goddesses and energies that require us to venture into the underworld, uh, the unknown. Right now, I'm viewing sex and death as portals or maybe like initiations. And I think it's the goddess who oversees these portals and like shows us how to use them and why they're important. And you know, like maybe highlighting our fears and misconceptions around them. And, you know, she can help us pass through them when the time is right. I don't know. That's my current mood. But (laughs) what do you think? Well, I love that. And I really couldn't agree more. But I also think that I'd like to add in the word cycles there. Like I think that they Mm -hmm. are just eternal Ouroboros, both beginning and yeah. end points, um, and mm-hmm. kind of just human human truths personified. Right. And so I guess with that being said, I would love to share some stories with you listeners and Kristen um, and perspectives of the goddess Isis this week. So Merlin Stone, again, us using similar um, sources yep. here. I love it. <laughs> Always. <laughs> um, so Merlin Stone wrote, quote, In the beginning, there was Isis, oldest of the old. She was the goddess from whom all becoming arose. She was the great lady, mistress of the two lands of Egypt, mistress of shelter, mistress of heaven, mistress of the house of life, mistress of the word of God. She was the unique. In all her great and wonderful works, she was a wiser magician, and more excellent than any other god, Thebes, Egypt, 14th century BC. The goddess Isis, the winged goddess, also known as Aset or Iset, is one of the most important goddesses of ancient Egypt. Her name originates from a Greek form of an ancient Egyptian word for throne. Initially, Isis was considered an obscure goddess who didn't have dedicated temples of her own, but she grew in importance as the dynastic age progressed until she became one of the most important deities for this ancient civilization. Famous queens were even considered to be embodied figures of the goddess, and Isis and Cleopatra have long been woven together in their importance in Egyptian history. Thanks to the relationship between Egypt and Rome, much like Cleopatra, the cult of Isis subsequently spread throughout the Roman Empire, and Isis was worshipped from England to Afghanistan. And of course, she is still revered today. Isis is affiliated with grief and mourning, and in mourning depictions, she was a principal deity in rites connected with the dead. 
As a magical healer, she cured the sick and brought the deceased to life. She was also considered an archetypal mother goddess. Isis had strong links with Egyptian kingship, and she was most often represented as a beautiful woman wearing a sheath dress and either the hieroglyphic sign of the throne or a solar disc and cow's horns on her head. Occasionally, she was represented as a scorpion, a bird, a sow, or a cow. There are no references to Isis that have survived before the 5th dynasty during 2465 to 2325 BCE, but she is mentioned many times in the pyramid texts, which were written approximately 2350 to 2100 BCE in which she offers assistance to the dead king. And then later, as ideas of the afterlife became more democratic, Isis was able to extend her help to all Egyptians going through death rites. The priests of Heliopolis, followers of the sun god Ra, developed the myth of Isis. This told that Isis was the daughter of the earth god Geb and the sky goddess Newt and the sister of the deities Osiris, Seth, and Nephthys. Married to Osiris, king of Egypt, Isis was a queen who supported her husband and taught the women of Egypt how to weave, bake, and brew beer. But Seth was jealous, and he hatched a plot to kill his brother. Seth trapped Osiris in a decorated wooden chest, which he coated in lead and threw into the Nile. The chest became a coffin, and when his brother vanished, Seth became king of Egypt. But Isis could not forget her husband, and she searched everywhere for him until she eventually discovered Osiris, still trapped in his chest in Byblos. She brought his body back to Egypt, where Seth discovered the chest and, furious, hacked his brother into pieces, which he scattered far and wide. Transforming into a bird and helped by her sister Nephthys, Isis was able to discover and reunite the parts of her dead husband's body. Only his penis was missing. So, using her magical powers, she was able to make Osiris whole, bandaged, neither living nor dead. Osiris had become a mummy. Nine months later, Isis bore him a son, Horus. Osiris was then forced to retreat to the underworld where he became king of the dead. Isis hid with Horus in the marshes of the Nile Delta until her son was fully grown and could avenge his father and claim his rightful throne. She defended the child against attacks from snakes and scorpions, but because Isis was also Seth's sister, she wavered during the eventual battle between Horus and Seth. In one iteration of this story, Isis took pity on Seth and was in consequence beheaded by Horus. The beheading was reversed by magic, and eventually she and Horus were reconciled and Horus was able to take his rightful throne. Isis was considered exemplary of the archetypal Egyptian wife and mother, fierce, defending, loyal, and constant. And Kristen, we talked about this a little bit in our Mother's Day episode in season two, the dark mother archetypes, but her story really reminded me of that, that sort of fierce mother lion energy. Yeah, definitely. However, beyond just this role as wife and as mother, her chief aspect was that of a great magician, whose power transcended that of all other deities. 
Several narratives tell of her magical prowess, far stronger than the powers of Osiris and Ra, and she was frequently invoked on behalf of the sick, and with the goddess Nephthys, Neith, and Selkut, she protected the dead. Isis became associated with various other goddesses, including Bastet, Newt, and Hathor, and thus her nature and her powers became increasingly diverse. Isis became known, like other fierce goddesses in the Egyptian pantheon, as the Eye of Ra, and was equated with the dog star known to us now as Sirius, which reminds me of Inanna and Venus's relationship in a way. Mm, yeah. The first major temple dedicated to Isis was built by the late period king Nektanebo II in 360 to 343 BCE in the central Nile Delta. Other important temples, including the island temple of Philae, were built during the Greco-Roman times when Isis was dominant among Egyptian goddesses. Several temples were dedicated to her in Alexandria, where she became the patron of seafarers. And from Alexandria, her cult spread to Greece and Rome. Images of Isis nursing the baby Horus may have influenced the early Christian artists who depicted the Virgin Mary with the baby Jesus. And I believe that we talked about this a little bit, too, in that Mother's Day episode from last year. Mm-hmm. There are two prevalent depictions of Isis that appear in sculpture, murals, and sarcophagus art. The first show her kneeling or hovering with her green, wind-colored wings outspread, and the Egyptian hieroglyph for the throne on her head. Sometimes her skin is also blue in these images. The second depiction is of her wearing a headdress of cow horns and a solar disc, the headdress of Hathor, as well as a girdle bound by a tayette, a magic knot that gives life. In this depiction, she is usually either seated on a throne, suckling Horus, or she is standing with a sistrum rattle in her hand. In this first image, the wings, the headdress, and the colors used are depictions, and the gestures depicted all have a symbolic meaning. The wings of Isis symbolize either female falcons or kites, which are birds of prey that have cries reminiscent of the cries of mourning women, and in this way, the wings represent both power and mourning. And I don't know about you, Kristen, but this actually really makes me think of Brigid and Keening. Um, I don't know if you have the same sort of association. Yeah. And I also love that you mentioned Isis standing with the sistrum rattle in her hand. Um, There's like this super famous statue of Persephone holding a sistrum. Yeah. And some suggest this instrument allowed her to move between worlds with ease. And so now I'm just like thinking of the Persephone, Isis, Inanna overlap here. Oh, that's really incredible. Um, you know, I actually saw some articles on JSTOR when I was researching this episode linking Demeter and Isis. So something that I'll need to return to at some point. But Ooh, yeah, super interesting. <laughs> yeah, really interesting. So looking forward to that, Kate. Yeah, we'll need a part two. Um, mm-hmm. And then there's also the matter of Isis's wings, which I just 
think are so important to her depictions, but in some interpretations, her wings represent the resurrective power of Isis, who fans her wings to give breath back to her dead husband, Osiris. And this is at times reinforced by that green color that we talked about earlier, um, green symbolizing resurrection um, in Egyptian art. But the wings can also be seen as symbolizing safety because they are depicted as outspread, which could be a protective gesture, and her headdress um, as the hieroglyph for the throne is also thought to be the hieroglyph for her name. So this represents her magical powers because the throne was believed to possess magical powers. In addition to this, the throne represents the primal order of the beginning because in its shape lies the original mound which first emerged from the waters as habitable land which to me speaks more to those portals and cycles that we mentioned earlier. And the more that we've been talking about this, Kristen, the, the more sort of like potent and palpable thing to me is just Isis's association with Venus and Aphrodite, Lilith, and Nana, um, which just makes me wonder about Inanna and Isis's relationship because I didn't really see anything connecting the two of them, and yet they still seem so threaded together. Yeah, there's overlap. We just need to dig deeper. Mm-hmm. So if listeners, if you have any articles that link the two of them, please, please send them along. But I also wanted to bring in Isis in contemporary culture briefly. I love how Isis is woven into Wonder Woman. Um, Isis is a superheroine appearing in American comic books published by DC Comics, as well as a separate Egyptian goddess also living in the DC universe. So the superhero character is modeled closely after the main character of The Secrets of Isis, which is a live action television program starring Joanna Cameron, for those that know. Um, So Kristen, are there any modern nods to uh, Inanna in pop culture? Well, first off, listeners, if you have not seen The Secrets of Isis, do yourself a favor and yes. look it up. <laughs> um, Kate sent me a link this morning, and I must know more. Um, but as far as Anana goes, I did some digging, and I found that she appears in a comic book series called The Wicked and the Divine. And borrowing some text from their Wikipedia page, it says The Wicked and the Divine is a, quote, contemporary fantasy comic book series created by Kieran Gillen and Jamie McKelvey and published by Image Comics. The series is largely influenced by pop music and various mythological deities and includes the themes of life and death in the stories. The comic has received positive reviews and was the winner of Best Comic at the 2014 British Comic Awards. It has also been noted for its diverse portrayal of ethnicity, sexuality, and gender social roles. You know, I absolutely love the overlap between goddess culture and comic book culture. Like, big yes. Me too. And I also found a 2017 article via Elle magazine authored by Kate Greenidge that compared Beyonce's appearance and performance at the Grammys to an invocation of Inanna. What? (laughs) Yes. So it reads, quote, Two days before Valentine's Day and two nights after the full moon eclipse in Leo, Beyonce Knowles Carter took the stage at the Grammys and led her audience through a mass invocation of the fertility goddess. 
Some fickle watchers called the performance slow or pretentious. They have grown used to the excellence of Beyonce and whined for something new, but anyone whose business it is to create things knew that they were watching something ancient and strange. I have chills. Just chills. (laughs) I love that. I need to watch that video. I know. I watched it before this, and again, listeners, do yourself a favor and look it up, and I'll link this article in our notes. Um, But the author's friend, Carrie, who they said is a translator who was in the process of translating the Song of Songs, said to be, quote, the sexiest book of the Bible, um, at the time of this article, is quoted as saying, It's the largest invocation of Inanna, the ancient Sumerian goddess of fertility, beauty, love, creativity, and knowledge that we've had in modern times. I'm going to need to do a little more research about the sexiest book of the Bible. Just say that. (laughs) And I just, I love all the overlaps here. Like, it's just such a good reminder, the connection of these stories and Mm -hmm. of all things. Um, And yeah, the secret of Isis is just so 70s. And I had to Mm -hmm. text my mom about it because I remembered playing dress up as a kid and wearing bangles um, and her teaching my sister and I to like twirl around and say, oh, mighty Isis. (laughs) And so I texted her last night. I I was like, was I hallucinating this? And she was like, no, no, it's from this. And she... um, sent that to me but yeah definitely definitely check that out and and thank you mom (laughs) and you know I'm sure that there's so much poetry dedicated to to all of these ancient goddesses but I wanted to close us out today with a few lines from Trilogy by HD Um, I think they're so beautiful so quote God they snatched off our amulets charms are not they said grace. But God's always face two ways. So let us search the old highways for the true rune, the right spell. Recover old values, nor listen if they shout out your beauty. Isis, Asset, or Astarte is a harlot. You are retrogressive, zealot, hankering after old flesh pots. Your heart, moreover, is a dead canker, they continue, and your rhythm is the devil's hymn. Your stylus is dipped in a corrosive sublimate. How can you scratch out indelible ink of the palimpsest of past misadventure? Let us, however, recover the scepter, the rod of power. Or us crowned with the lily head or the lily bud, it is cadacious among the dying. It bears healing or evoking the dead. It brings life to the living. Thank you so much for joining us today on Magic and Alchemy, a podcast from Tamed Wild. Again, we're Kristen Lizenby and Kate Ballou. You can find us online at Easton Alchemy and at K8 Ballou. Send us all of your questions, comments, or just say hello via email at podcast at tamedwild.com. You can view all the amazing offerings from Tamed Wild on their Instagram at tamedwild or on the blog tamedwild.com. Tune in to next week's episode for Types of Magic Part 2. Just a reminder that magic and alchemy are always available to those who know where to look for it, so mote it be or something better. 
Until next time.